My name is Kate Bowler, and this is Everything Happens. One of the things my father-in-law said when I first got sick was that life is a series of losses. By which, of course, he meant that he couldn't play racquetball anymore because of his bad knees. Hilarious. But he wasn't wrong. Life is a series of losses. At some point, you peak. So how do you live when you're on the downslope? When you find yourself in the second half of life? Or when you've had an injury or a chronic illness and now life is limited? Or what about if you feel like you can't ever reach your full potential because people are depending on you? How do you spend your time and resources when you just have less? Today's episode is for everyone who feels like they might not climb every mountain. How do we make choices? How do we live well? My guest today is Dr. B.J. Miller. He is a hospice and palliative care specialist. But before he became a doctor, he became a patient. I'll let him tell you about it. His story has been featured on Oprah's Super Soul Sunday, on the TED stage, and in his new book, A Beginner's Guide to the End, where his work in end-of-life care seeks to connect art, spirituality, and medicine to offer us a new way to live and die well. BJ, I'm so grateful to be talking with you today. Thank you, Kate. It's such a pleasure to meet you. <laughs> I mm. also hate the fact that at the very beginning of getting to know each other, that I will ask you about the terrible part first. I really don't mind at all. I kind of wear it on my sleeve. Mm. Um, you know, sophomore year of college, 1990. So I was 19. Just after Thanksgiving holidays, we were just coming back, and it was a Monday night, and I was off to the computer lab to print out a paper and um, ran into some friends. We decided to go have a drink or two and just relax. We didn't go wild. We were going to go get a sandwich at the Wawa Market, mm-hmm. and we're walking across campus, and there's a commuter train that just sits there in the corner of the campus. And it was just, you know, non-operating. I was just sitting there, and we climbed it like you climb a tree. I happened to be the first one up, and I jumped. When I stood up, I had uh, the, the wires, the power for the train, the power source for the train is overhead. So it's not like a diesel train, like some yeah. people might know. So when I stood up, I had a metal watch on, and I got close enough to the power source, and the electricity arced to my watch, entered the arm, and uh, ground down and blew, blew out my uh, both legs. And then uh, that was it. Then I was, you know, taken to a burn unit in New Jersey, at, uh, eventually to St. Barnabas Hospital. And I was in there for several months and had a series of amputations surgically. And, uh, it was, you know, touch and go for a while. But uh, it all, in the end, I did, I got out. I got out. Wow. That sounds mm-hmm. like it was a very long season of <laughs> recovery. <laughs> Yeah. And I've heard you say that you adopted the attitude of like, fake it till you make it. And that, Mm. I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like a a lot of things went right as as has to happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had a lot of support. I got great medical care. I had beautiful friendships and people really rose to the occasion and rallied. And my family, like my parents, I don't, I've never heard heard of this. I don't know if this ever happens, but somehow my parents, who at that time were living in Chicago, mm-hmm. they moved into the hospital in New Jersey. I was in the burning it for about three months or so. Wow. Anyway, the, the point is I had 
pounds of support. And I really was sort of trying to recreate a life and figure out who I was and who I was and ah, la, la, la. And there was a lot of pain, as you can imagine. Your body is not so much your friend at times. But I could see land. You know, thanks to my family and friends, I I was out to sea, but I could see land. Like, they held the shore for me. The way it felt was they... They loved me. They held the the other end of the bridge. They loved me and touched me and looked at me and and didn't condescend. They cared for me while I filled in the blanks myself, while I came to love myself again on some level, where I came to accept my new lot. That was the faking it part was like, okay, guys, I have faith in you and you seem to still yes. care about me. So I'm going to, I'll care too. Yeah. To honor your what you're doing, to honor life in general, I'll care too. And I'm going to try. Yeah. And, it, and it eventually, you know, I filled in enough gaps that I could stand up and walk around and I and walked across the bridge back to land and, you know, yeah. here I am. That makes sense that people set the horizon for us sometimes. And then sometimes mm-hmm. even just them being there. Like I study prosperity churches forever and they had their own version of fake it till you make it like it's our obligation to always be chipper and sort of enact what you hope to achieve but what Mm. you're describing is a much richer version where people's love in us can reconstitute our own expectations Mm -hmm. of what our life could be again yeah because frankly i'm not i don't know about you but i think I think life is generally way more amazing than I'm able to treat it. You know, I don't often, you know, it's hard to feel up to the bigness that it is. Yeah. So I watch myself and others sort of reduce it to make it manageable, knowable, et cetera. But here I was sort of cast into a way bigger field that took a while to catch up with. Yeah. But in so many ways, it was, of course, an enormous eye opener. And to your point... Strangers do this too, you know, hold, hold that bridge, hold that horizon and remind us how amazing life is until I can, until I myself can get back up there and actually believe it too. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I think the part I find exhausting is when Americans, she said lovingly, have this deep desire to believe that we are all limitless I, it sounds like you, from a very early age, became more comfortable with limitation than maybe other people. Mm -hmm. I think that's true. By force, you know, in some ways, the trajectory was heading for a relative limitlessness. I was a hyper-educated white man, (laughs) you know, able-bodied, all that stuff. I mean, I had the running start, you know. But I think from an early age, I think if you just pay attention, and I certainly owe so much to my mother who lives with polio. And so mm. I've been around disability forever. Yeah. So I've been thinking about limitations in ways that would probably be different from my peers as a kid. Yeah. I mean, I can't begin to unpack how helpful my family has been to me in terms of the example they've set, my mom in particular, my dad, how he treats my mom, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But this idea that people are like, oh, and if you can dream it, it will happen. Oh and you can do anything and positivism and and especially in California, geez, Louise, in the Bay Area. Oh, my Lord. You know, like if you acknowledge a limitation, you're just like a party pooper. You almost feel like you're going to be run out of town. Yeah. Like it, it, this is the land of dreams. How we, dare you not send me your good vibes only? How dare you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think and because A, it's unrealistic and that's a huge problem. But B, like I am not only only accept the idea of limitations, but I'm enamored with them. 
Mm-hmm. I understand at a very base level the relationship between a limitation and creativity. Like that is what humans are really, really good at. We're not amazing creatures of nature. I mean, yeah. you know, you throw you or me out in the woods for a week, we're kind of toast. <laughs> my, my cat would do way better than us, right, On, by some measure. But we, because of our limitations, we find workarounds. We get creative. We adapt like no other species that's walked this earth. And yeah. that is completely related to our limitations. So I, I'm enamored with them. I'm almost grateful yeah. for my limitations. Yeah. You know, I really appreciated the way that so much of this is born from your insider's perspective. Hearing you talk about your experience as a patient, I just loved even just what the word patient conjured up for you. You're like asking people (laughs) to remember that like when you're in the bed, you have to be patient with your own limitations. Mm -hmm. You have to live in a world that is bounded for you in ways you might mm-hmm. not have picked. And it seems like when you come into the room, you bring a kind of 360 view to that, maybe for your own mm. patients. I really do think, I, I feel very lucky in so many ways. And we can open that up, but I don't want to be Pollyannish yeah. at all in any of this. But I will say, where it relates to my profession, I do feel very fortunate to have had the experiences as a patient. And, you know, I, I have taught a fair amount in the School of Medicine and School of Nursing here at UCSF. And, you know, I find myself with these kind of slightly sadistic fantasies that all anyone who's going to do clinical work somehow ends up having something horrible go wrong (laughs) that lands them in the bed, essentially, because it's such an incredible education and it provides insights that you're going to be hard pressed to get from a book. And because my disability is so dang obvious, I just get to walk in a room and immediately everyone knows I've been through something. Yeah. I've been I've been a patient. Somehow my life didn't go as I had hoped or planned. And that just immediately, practically instantaneously gets me to, I think, a better place with mm-hmm. patients, perhaps just maybe a more trusting place. When mm-hmm. I first got sick and I wanted treatment, I immediately thought that when someone said palliative care, they meant that they were giving up treatment for me. Right, right. But, I mean, it's not. Would you mind just telling us a bit about some of the misconceptions of palliative care. Palliative care. I mean, the word palliate just simply means to ease or to cloak. That's it. I mean, it's basically multiple disciplines getting together on behalf of, you know, lessening suffering Mm -hmm. and optimizing feeling good, you know, feeling as well as possible. That's the goal of palliative care, period. Irrespective, you could have one hour to live, you could have a century to live. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So to be so super clear with your listeners, you do not need to be dying anytime soon to benefit from palliative care. You just need to be struggling. And it's pretty darn easy to struggle with yeah. illness and, and struggle with the healthcare system. You know, so there's no shame in it. Palliative care can be almost more of a way of life. Like even mm-hmm. just accepting the idea that we're limited. And mm-hmm. that was hard for me to come to, but I was kind of blown away when you described it in musical terms. And you talked about mm-hmm. the crescendo and just being able to follow the song through till its end. That's kind of the heart of it for me whenever I hear you give a talk. It's just that you've come to accept limitation in this really generative way. Gosh, that's a wonderful takeaway. And that message does really make sense to me. Then you're in an engaged point of view. You're off your heels. Yeah. You're leaning into your life. 
You're working with your limitations. You're working with reality. You're yeah. working with a fuller view of reality. Reality is pretty amazing and hard, yeah. but amazing. And to sort of divvy it up and say, this part of life is, no, I'm going to, that's not for me. I'm going to just, I'm going to have all positives, no negatives. <laughs> Honestly, I'd almost rather we just sort of banned adjectives altogether. Yeah. You know, like yeah. just, just deal with whatever is good, bad, black, white, rich, poor. So much harm gets done by our labels. We tell ourselves that we are one thing. We're saying all the things that we're not. Yeah. And the truth is, I, I would have never. Yeah. Interestingly, I don't know about how you feel, Kate, with your dance with illness, but I have to believe I would have learned some of these lessons otherwise. Mm. But you know, I have come to love my life and loving my life means loving every ounce of it. I don't get to handpick and quilt it together. I yeah. have to love all of it. Yeah. That's the charge. And that I've learned really directly related to my injuries. I don't know how else to say it. Yeah. I think what's hard though for me, like when I allow my mind to just do that reach, right, where it can try to love all the scope of it, I think what's so hard, mm. though, is I just keep bumping up against the fear. I think it's hard for me because I, you know, I'm so grateful for everything I've discovered once I realized that I was on the losing team. You know, I've come to really mm. embrace that. But whenever I want to embrace it, I keep bumping up against being afraid. Mm. Afraid of anything in particular? Man? I guess just like if I don't live long enough, then I will have not you know, been a mom for long enough or mm. been a daughter for long enough or a wife. Like, I guess a lot of it is just focused on the people I love and mm. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That part, like incompleteness, I guess, scares me sometimes. Well, and I don't pretend to have advice for you, but do you think to whatever degree your life might be incomplete in the end, do you think there is such a thing as a complete life? Mm. Is there a line in there? Yeah. Because I guess one of the things I really appreciated about reading your work and and listening to you is it makes even the shorter songs feel a bit fuller. You know, mm. like if you can work with the end in mind, like you can live with more richness. I guess mm -hmm. it just feels like richness for me sometimes. Like we can't know yeah. if we've given enough to the world, I guess. <laughs> If that makes sense. Yeah, what would be, what would, what the heck would be enough? Yeah. Too? I mean, when would it be enough? And how long is a long life? Yeah, 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 yeah. I have a different view of that now. And I, I feel like I wish I knew that math. I wish you could, anyone could just like mm. give me that math. You'd be like, all yeah. right, 44. <laughs> That's it. You just have to hit 44 and you'd be awesome. You'd yeah, have done well, it. no such luck. Life's way more mysterious, isn't it? Isn't it? it is. I, way more demanding. I used to have this totally lame desire to have an app that would like go off. So I'm always at these academic conferences and there's like 2000 receptions and I'm always mm. at a reception. And someone's like, Oh, Hey, we should go down the hall to this reception. And then you're at this other reception and truly it's lame and you're really wishing you were at the other one. And long mm -hmm. ago I decided, wouldn't it be awesome if you had an app that went off when you were at peak fun and then you could relax and really <laughs> no. enjoy what you're what you're doing. And when I read your stuff, I thought, oh, man, like, how do you learn to be more attuned to peak life so that you're not the person who lives with regret? And I think oh. part of it is like giving up maybe on the framework of regret. Well, I've really surprised myself at how prone to regret I've become of late. Mm. And, and I don't and I don't really understand 
why. And so I'm wondering what it's trying to tell me. And I do, I do have like a, a bratty piece of me that you know, just doesn't understand that I can't be everywhere at once. Like yeah. I honestly don't get it. Maybe I'm a narcissist. I don't know. Maybe I think I could do anything and everything. Oh, and I totally I'm, I'm, I'm think that about offended. myself. I love this. Well, I, I, yeah. Yeah. When well, I feel like offended <laughs> that I can't, like there's a piece of me that wants to like pout. Yeah. And it's an old piece of me. And sometimes it kind of pops out and gets a little bit more air than others. And I'm, I've been in a zone l- lately where it's just, yeah. I'm just filled with regret. I start my day and end my day with feelings of regret. Well, I don't know what to do with it, but... I, it does yeah. put me back to something I was going to say about fear, which is, I think, part of the message of this way of rolling all experience into a life, mm-hmm. a full life, in mm-hmm. other words. I think that must mean having the full spectrum of emotions, including fear. And so, like, at least a technique yeah. that's worked with me with for fear and with some of my patients is like, yeah, no, you get to be afraid. The, the goal here isn't to stamp out those pesky, untidy emotions. No, no, no. Yeah. Uh, It's a much bigger charge. Like existential fears are to be listened to, are to be heeded, are, as it feels like a reminder in in us saying, hey, hey, you're not going to live forever. Hey, hey, take it seriously, man. Yeah. Yeah. Use your time. Hey, appreciate it right now. Yeah. And that is related to find meaning. It's out there. Make it, create it, relate, pal, while you can, do it while you can. It's a a regret avoidance kind of muscle in us. And so in other words, there's something vital about existential fear versus like fear of snakes or fear of heights. Well, you just avoid snakes and don't go up on heights. (laughs) This is a fear to be respected. It's a fear that I think that demands and gets easier the closer we look at it, the more we work with it rather than try to run from it. Yeah, it's a regret avoidant fear. What a smart thing to say. Because I... I don't want to be one of those bucket listy people who are like, nothing is important if I haven't seen the pyramids. And then, you know, you see other people who want to treat life like it's this really awful all-you-can-eat buffet, like maybe like mm-hmm. the Denny's kind, where you're just like, no, no, no. And you're just like consuming forever. I do really love the idea that it does make you make different decisions yeah. when you live with the end in mind. Yeah. And I think in a, in a positive way. On balance. Yeah. Um, I, I get why a lot of us try to run away from all this stuff. If we could actually run away from all these <laughs> pesky thoughts and our mortality, if, like, if it were possible, I might go for it. I might advocate <laughs> for that. I guess I'm just here to say it's not possible. Sure. And therefore. You're like, I've, seen, <laughs> you know. I've done a survey. Everyone dies. Given the results <laughs> yeah. of the survey, I've come back to exactly. you to tell <laughs> I've changed my mind and it turns out, right. No, exactly. I, I think that's a really important piece here. It's not like I love death or I love <laughs> limitations just so because I've kind of got some weird dark streak. It's just, no, I love them because they exist. And my charge is try to love what exists, including myself. Yeah. So yeah. And that feels like an important asterisk in this. Yeah. You have this new book, A Beginner's Guide to the End. And when I read it, it felt like a real how-to guide. Like It it reminded Mm. me when I was reading um, What to Expect When You're Expecting when I was pregnant. (laughs) It has this very similar, like, practical, no secrets, you know, kind of approach, a list of almost things to be prepared for. And Mm -hmm. so who is this book for? Yeah, it is. It is meant to be extremely practical, but supportive, too. We hope. We hope we got the tone right. Mm -hmm. One of the challenges with all this stuff, with a how-to guide, with 
with any sort of constructive preparation work around dying, if you're not careful, I've watched myself do this with people accidentally. You know, we talk about the aspirations, about the opportunities along the way, about what can still be and how to reframe hope and la, la, la. All really important. But if you follow some of the logic out, you might feel a sort of pressure to get it right. And the last thing on earth I or Shoshana, my co-author, ever would want to do is set people up to feel like they're failing at dying. You know, the second we say, here's a way to deal with it so you're not quite so miserable— and if someone doesn't do all those things and they're a little bit more miserable than they want to be and then they're going, oh, crap, now yeah. I, I failed to die. I can't even die well. <laughs> you know, like that would be horrible. So I, just, I hope to God that we got that tone right. Yeah. But that's a really important distinction. The very first line of the book is there's nothing wrong with you for dying. Yeah, preparation, planning is important. But there's a real big meta message. It's don't be ashamed of your nature. Don't be ashamed to die. Mm. Don't do that to yourself. You've got enough pain to deal with. Yeah. And and it was also nice in its scope because it's for people who are sick or people who are elderly and and also just for those who love them. Yeah, it is meant for... So when Shoshana and I were writing this thing, this beast, we were trying to figure out your question. Who who the heck is really going to read? Who's the audience? Mm And what we decided to try to do was to write to the patient, the person who's actually just got a diagnosis or somewhere on the spectrum of, of life either coming to an end or of being challenged to our bones. Yeah. Um, so it's meant to be practical and, and the information is geared to the patient and the tone is geared to the patient as a rule. But the secondary audience is the caregiver. Yeah. And Our thesis is probably that more caregivers will read the book than patients, although it seems important to respect the patient and speak directly to him or her. It's one of the things that happens. I don't know if you've had this experience, Kate. It's it's amazing how people find ways to see through the actual patient, especially if they're in a—I don't know if you've ever noticed this. I notice it all the time with people in wheelchairs, like my mom uses a wheelchair. I'll be with her. People will talk to me, not her. People talk to my dad, not her. People will see right through her. So for so many reasons, we didn't want to actually make that mistake and assume that the patient wasn't reading this. No, they're they're our primary audience. Yeah. I'm just thinking about what you said about minimizing fear, and it made me wonder what kind of advice you might have or we might be able to come up with for people who want to be a little more comfortable with their losses. Mm. For me, what has been very, very helpful is when I sort of pondering loss, pondering grief, pondering coping, Yeah, is reminding myself that the loss hurts because we care, because yeah. we love. Yeah. They are absolutely directly correlated. Yeah. And so that has allowed me to, when I feel loss, when I feel grief, I've gotten much better at reminding myself, hey, man, that's love talking. And that just casts a totally different yeah. climate you know, around yeah. the suite of sensations that go along with all this. Yeah. And that reminder has proven, at least for me and some of my patients, has been very, very helpful. Yeah. Like making a little bubble around it that says, like, this is beautiful. That's why it matters. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. why it matters. And that's why it hurts that it's going. That's why, you know, that's, it's completely directly related. Yeah. It's not a silver lining or a fringe benefit. No, no, no. This is a wonder, like a one-to-one correlation, direct yeah. relationship. Yeah, between things you love. And grief. And maybe even just that image you gave at the beginning of the bridge 
it feels good to be anchored by both people. And it feels good also mm. just to, to see our lives as bridges where we know the beginning and we're all kind of hoping we're just near the middle. But like, it's good just to see the other side, to see the destination and just get that sense of horizon that comes with, yeah. with seeing the scope of our lives. Yeah, it is grounding. Yeah. Um, I think. Yeah. And in some way, we, we know where we're headed. Yeah. Makes us great at parties. People love it when we bring <laughs> it up. man i'm so glad you're in this club with me it really makes (laughs) you really happy (laughs) well it's getting bigger our little club sweetheart it is there's gonna be a lot a lot of people begging to come to this party um (laughs) there's some truth to that i mean you know our stories are going to become less and less exotic you know just by the demographics yes and, and that's kind of a fascinating notion well my deep hope is that we all become a little more comfortable with the scripts, the social scripts around suffering. And maybe in the mm. meantime, I'll take racquetball up just to piss my father-in-law off. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thanks so much for talking with me today. This was such a treat. Thanks, Kate. always drives me a little crazy every time someone says, the best is yet to come. Because I want it to feel okay again to say, lovingly, sometimes it isn't. Sometimes we lose things. Sometimes we have crescendoed. Sometimes we have finished singing the song of our amazing racquetball career. Sometimes we've finished humming the tune of our parenthood, either because we didn't have that baby or they've grown. Maybe you're playing the closing notes of a parent's life, or a friend, or a child. I want it to feel okay again for us to sing, knowing that someday the last note will be sung. I have a lot to sing about. I may never be an amazing racquetball player, sorry dad, but I can make different choices if I'm allowed to work backwards, asking myself how I might spend my time, best efforts, gifts, and resources, knowing that I am limited. There's this beautiful story in Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal, about a study where people were asked who they wanted to spend time with. So they asked little kids and teenagers and adults and then the elderly, and they found it went like this. Little kids wanted to spend time with their family, and teenagers wanted to spend time with their friends, and by the time you asked the guy in his 30s, he wanted to meet Bono. But then the closer people grew to death, the more they wanted to spend time with their closest friends and family again. The horizon shrunk back to that beautiful, precious inner circle. I get that. We make different evaluations about what to do with our time when we live with an awareness of the end. And what a gift to be able to see that with such clarity. So let's sing our songs about our beautiful, ridiculous lives. We will peak and crescendo and approach the finale, hoping for a pretty damn good finish. When my dad was diagnosed with ALS, I took up birding as a hobby. It had been one of his, and I had resisted his efforts early in life to get me into it. 
I took it up because it gave us something to talk about while he was sick, other than talking about that he was sick and would one day die. I confess I birded a lot after his death. It made me feel connected to him, as well as giving me space to grieve. In September 2015, my baby son was born sleeping, and his death hit me with such a sense of shock and trauma that, uh, and grief that I had never really experienced before. Um, I was knocked sideways, and I wasn't really sure how to recover from that. A little while later, I wanted to somehow move my focus from something that I couldn't do to something that I could. I wanted life. Um, so I started a choir up at my kids' school. Um, we had 30 kids coming along, and together we sang. And it was a joy. It is something that I wouldn't have had the time or the energy or the motivation to do if I hadn't experienced such a serious loss. Whilst I would not wish to go through that again, I'm thankful for where it has brought me. I wrote poetry after my grandfather died. It helped me better capture the little details about him that I was afraid of forgetting. I find that I often lose those small details in longer form writing, so poetry was a nice challenge that kept Papa breathing on the page. So many thanks goes to our amazing partners who make this all possible. The John Templeton Foundation, the Issachar Fund, the Lilly Endowment, North Carolina Public Radio WUNC, Faith and Leadership, an online learning resource, and Duke Divinity School. Not to mention my team, Beverly Abel, Jessica Ritchie, and Be the Change Revolutions. I'd love to know what you think. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts and find me online at Kate C. Bowler. This is Everything Happens with me, Kate Bowler.